This is a Federal News Network podcast. The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Mark Amtower of Amtower and Company, which is entirely responsible for its content. This is Amtower Off Center on Federal News Network. Every week, author, speaker, consultant Mark Amtower gives you his take on what's going on in the world of federal marketing. Now, your host, Mark Amtower. Welcome to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. I'm Mark Amtower. I'm here with my friend, longtime friend, Marissa Levin. Uh, welcome back to the show, Marissa. So good to be here. I'm 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 glad you feel that way. So uh, remind people who you are and what you do, and then we'll talk about where we met. Sure, I am Marissa Levin, and I am uh, currently co-founder of Successful Culture International, and. You and I have gone back, what, um, two decades? Uh, about that, yeah. It's <laughs> been a long time. Uh, Successful Culture International is my third business. My first business was Information Experts, which I uh, exited 12 years ago. Can't believe it's been that long. That was a government contracting firm uh, that served the federal civilian uh, defense and intelligence agencies, providing education and training, human capital and marketing. I grew that to about $14 million dollars until I went on to greener pastures 12 years ago. And now I help leaders and organizations build their best culture. Yeah. And, you know, when small businesses here, you build it to 14, that, you know, for some of them, that, that doesn't sound like a lot, but it really is. It's, it's not an easy market to break into. Mm-mm. So, uh, and, and just if, if you happen to have a copy of Selling to the Government, I did write about Marissa in that. I've written about her a couple other places too, and I use her story uh, when I'm talking about account-based marketing and focusing on a particular contract because these aren't easy to get. And I'm not going to take this myself, Marissa, but I, I really want you to, you know, thumbnail that information expert story because it bears repeating. Sure. So you want to kind of dive in about that? Yeah, let's start there. Okay. Uh, so, gosh, I think it was 1993 that I started Information Experts going way back. And, uh, you know, I started that company because I was working for another small business that um, capped my worth. My CEO, the CEO of that former company told me that I would never be worth more than $34,000 to his firm. So it was just a sign for me to go ahead and start my own company. Uh, I had no real business background experience, except for the consulting experience that I learned at that company. Launched information experts with a set of core values and a mission to wanting to help organizations communicate more clearly. And from there, I I built the company and uh, it was right around 9-11 that we decided to go for our 8A. Uh, because my industry initially was telecommunications and the internet industry and all of that imploded right around the same time as 9-11 and we had to make a shift. We had to make a pivot. And my father, uh, who at the time was working for the government at NASA, he said to me, you know, the government really needs strong small businesses now as they are in this inflection point after 9-11 and we really need to build our 
national infrastructure and it's the time to get into government to serve the mission of the government and being in the dc region that really resonated with me and i have so much respect for my father and i saw what he built um running the uh programs at nasa and at goddard space flight center that he ran and i i wanted to honor him and i wanted in some ways to follow in his footsteps and that's really mark what inspired me to get into government was to fulfill the mission of the government and to work with government agencies that were committed to building the best country that we could be. That was my motivation. Okay. The, the, the part of the story I want to focus on for a couple of minutes anyway, is your focus on OPM and Mm -hmm. training and one contract in particular. Sure. So when I got into government, we did get our 8A, and that was great. And that opened up a whole bunch of opportunities, as you can imagine. But as you know, the 8A vehicle is simply a license to hunt. It's not business. Getting the 8A is the first part. And then the hard work comes when you're actually trying to find the business. Right. A lot of companies out there that are looking to get into government, they think, oh, if I get my GSA schedule or if I get this certification or if I get 8A certified, I'll be golden. No, that is when the hard work starts. And so to your point with the OPM vehicle, back then OPM, the training management and assistance office, uh, had, a, had a contract and it had both a training contract and a human capital ch- contract. And I watched that vehicle It was renewed every five years, and I watched that vehicle for seven years before we actually went for that vehicle. What I did uh, when I first started my company is I became an independent solo contractor, subcontractor to the companies that were already on that vehicle because I wanted to learn about the vehicle from the inside out. I wanted to learn about the services that were provided and procured. I wanted to know who the program managers were. I wanted to understand how the vehicle operated. And so the only way to really do that is to immerse yourself in that environment. And so that's what I did as a subcontractor. I became integral to a lot of the teams that were on that vehicle. Through that, I then made the decision that this was something that I wanted to do, right? So it's all about intention. That's how everything is in life. And uh, to quote um, Dr. Nito Cobain, who is president of High Point University, where my younger son attends school, there are no unrealistic goals. There are only unrealistic timelines. And I knew that I wanted to go on that vehicle. And I knew that I could build a company that could serve that vehicle and do it well. But I also knew that there was a lot that I didn't know. And so when the vehicle came up for renewal down the road, a couple years after I had been a subcontractor, I had to make the painful decision to know that we weren't ready for it as a company. We just weren't ready. We didn't have the infrastructure to serve it. We didn't have the financial wherewithal to finance the preparation of the proposal. We, we just, we didn't have the past performances. We didn't have the executive team. And the worst thing that a company can do Mark in government when they want to go after a game changing vehicle is to go after it before they're ready. And I'm all for taking risk. I'm all for taking calculated risk. And I don't let fear drive my decisions. But when you don't, as a business owner, assess and evaluate the gravity of what's required to go after an opportunity, you're going to set yourself up for failure. 
So because I had been working in the vehicle as a subcontractor, I understood what was involved in that contract. And I had to make that painful decision to wait another five years before going for it. But I knew that if I waited, I would give myself the runway and the experience and the knowledge to build the right infrastructure and to go after it in such a way where we could win and deliver. Because it's not just about winning, it's about delivering. And so that's what we did. We waited and we watched and we pounced when it was time. And then we won both vehicles, the TMA uh, training and the human capital. Wonderful. The main thing from my point of view, after the experience there was you were a very known commodity when you chose to bid. So you had built the relationships. We did. Yeah, I had all those relationships already built with all those program managers. That was when Jen Setian was there as the program director. And I had built that relationship with her because I was a subcontractor. And I built that relationship with her even during the years when we passed on the opportunity to bid. And I had to tell the OPM team, we're not ready to bid on this yet. Okay. So technically that was a GWAC. It wasn't a technology contract, but it was open to all agencies. It was. Yes. Did you decide to focus on specific agencies? How, how did you manage that end? Oh, I'm so glad you asked that. And you know, Mark, you've heard me say this before, when you're building your first company, it's like building a plane while you're flying it. Right. Uh, You just hope you don't crash. You hope you have the right people next to you in the cockpit. You hope all the equipment's working well. You hope you're going in the right direction and at the right altitude and you make so many mistakes. And when we got that vehicle, you know, every agency was, was, uh, had access to that vehicle. And my thought was, we're going to respond to everything. You know, we're going to go after USAID and ODNI and GSA and FDA and all of them. And looking back, what we did is we went wide. We didn't go deep. We were in about 15 different federal agencies. And that's a lot of agencies to have to get to know. And if I could do it over, I would have focused on some, you know, a handful of core agencies and gone deep and built my company around teams, around those agencies, but we built our company around services. We had training and development, we had marketing, we had human capital, um, you know, we, we, we had um, tangential services around those three areas. And so we became experts in those areas, but we didn't go deep in a lot of agencies where we could have really you know, leveraged our experience and our relationships uh, to get to extract a lot more value in in key agencies. We went wide. And I and that was a mistake. Well, everybody makes them. We're going to take a quick break. And I want to return to this for a minute. Marissa and I will be back right after this. Welcome back to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. If you didn't figure it out, I'm here with Marissa Levin. Marissa, tell them where, uh, tell people where they can find you, please. They can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, Marissa Levin One is my LinkedIn profile, and I'm very active there. Um, and they can find me at Marissa at SuccessfulCulture.com. Cool. 
So on on the your your minor minor, I call it a minor regret. It may be a major regret on going wide instead of deep. Um, do do you think you would have been able to grow the business faster had you narrowed it down to a couple of agencies rather than a dozen? I think you know when we when we look back at points in our life, Mark. A lot of times what we're remembering may or may not be accurate, right? I mean, that's how our memories are. So I'll answer that question with that caveat. Um, I think we probably could have grown more. I think we could have scaled more. I mean, we had plans to scale quite um, significantly prior to the whole LPTA disaster that was implemented by the government, the lowest price technically acceptable mandate. We had a lot of growth plans. I think we probably would have grown bigger if we would have specialized in certain core agencies. Okay. I, I would agree. I'm, I'm a huge advocate of account-based marketing. Wherever you have a beachhead, you should develop that before mm-hmm. you branch out. The, the, I mean, the temptation when you're focusing on a particular contract, though, particularly one that's wide. So let's say, you know, now you're going after soup or you're going after uh, Polaris or, you know, one of the larger vehicles. Your your temptation is, you know, hell, it's a GWAC. Let's go wide. But, you know, if you win a contract, it's usually predicated on CPARs. Your CPARs are predicated on doing business with particular agencies. If you've already got good relationships at those agencies, why not start there rather than try to build a reputation where you're not known? I agree. I agree. And and even, you know, we won a lot from OPM TMA and we always delivered But like, you know, for example, USAID, we actually ended up being the small business contractor of the year when we were servicing USAID through the OPM vehicle. And because we had such a great reputation, like that was an agency that we could have gone a lot deeper. But then we were also really focused on Department of Education, right? And we became known in federal student aid as a a dynamite, you know, powerhouse small business. Same with GSA, Same with FDIC. Like we had great success stories and great relationships and reputations throughout so many agencies. And I look back and I think if we would have just taken a handful of those and gone really deep, you know, what would our potential have been? Yeah, it. it, Well, we can't rewrite history, but we can we can certainly learn from it. So when you're advising companies now, uh, you're you're your knowledge base really has expanded so you can help them grow faster. You, you intimated something uh, early on when you were talking about building information experts and that you, you were hiring people uh, predicated on um, uh, your, your culture, your values. So can, I don't, we don't need to take a deep dive here because we kind of talked about it when you were here before, but I do want you to take a dive because that that's really a key part of growth for a lot of companies. It's a huge part. I mean, you know, when I started information experts, the first thing that I did was I built my values. They were my true North. They were my moral compass. They, you know, they, they represented who I wanted to be in the market and what was important to me. And 
I think that this is really important work. You know, you can't be the lowest cost provider and the highest quality provider. Like you have to pick a lane, right? You can't be a company that is going to, you know, burn the midnight oil to develop a software product 20 where people are working literally 20 hours a day and also say, oh, but we're very family focused. Which one is it? And there's no right or wrong. There's no good or bad, but it's a matter of being very clear what you stand for and what type of culture you have. When I built information experts, quality was absolutely the the central tenant of what we did. Quality of products and services, quality of life inside the company and quality of life outside the company. That was very important to me. And I built the company around that core value. Um, As the company grew, the values change too. And that happens when companies grow, when it becomes more than just the founder, but when they grow and they have an executive team and, you know, we had 70 people in my company, we went from that startup mode and growth mode to more of an established and mature model. And we had to change the values to reflect that. Uh, And then you also, being a government contractor, you have to make sure that your core values are in alignment with the values of your customer. So there's a lot of things to take into consideration from a values perspective. Did you ever tell any of your employees that they would never be worth more than $34,000. I did not. (laughs) So that may have been a lesson you picked up at a previous gig. Yeah, I suppose, you know, my, my mom taught me um, never to let anyone else determine your worth. And that really stuck with me when he capped my worth at 34,000. Yeah. I mean, that, that, that was, that's one of the classic stupid statements in government market. And I'm between the two of us, we could probably write a book on how many stupid things we've heard CEOs say. Yeah. Well, that wasn't even a government contractor. That was just another company, you know, a private sector company, but you know, leaders, uh, leadership, just because someone's in a leadership capacity, just because they have the title of CEO or some other title, doesn't make them a leader. No, no. So um, other elements that you, you've taken from that and now are using in your advisory capacity. Um, let's, let's talk about DEI a little bit. Uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion? Yes, ma'am. Okay. So Successful Culture International has a scale academy, the Successful Culture Advanced Leadership Education Academy. And we provide a curriculum to leaders as well as uh, employees on um, topics such as unconscious bias, which by the way, we've been doing since it was long before it was cool to do unconscious bias. We've been doing probably before it had a name. Exactly. Uh, uh, Training on creating the diverse, uh, equitable and inclusive environments. We train on self-awareness, emotional intelligence, communication skills, conflict resolution, leadership versus management. The, the, the nuts and bolts of what make a leader a leader. And, you know, there's been so much attention on how, you know, to create an environment that, uh, that celebrates diversity, that celebrates equity, which is different than equality. Those are different things and inclusivity. And, you know, today's leaders uh, have different requirements than leaders of the past, you know, in the past, Leaders really were focused on making numbers, setting strategic objectives, making sure the team is delivering, inspiring people to work their hardest and do their best. 
now leaders are uh, tasked with and have the opportunity to really create safe environments. And this is something, uh, you know, that is critical. Um, how does an organization create an environment where everyone feels seen and heard and valued and recognized for the diversity that they bring into an organization? How does a leader create an environment where employees can have difficult yet safe and constructive conversations? And so that's the type of training that we do is we, we bring the awareness around unconscious bias and diversity, equity, and inclusion to leaders and to organizations so that they can create the safest environments possible. Okay. We're going to take a quick break. You're listening to AmTower Off Center on the Federal News Network. Marissa and I shall return right after this. Welcome back to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. I'm here today with my friend Marissa Levin, uh, finder on LinkedIn and finder. Give me the website one more time, please. Successfulculture.com. That's easy. Successful culture as opposed to unsuccessful culture. Exactly. Part part of a success successful culture is having a either a board of advisors or a board of directors um, to to facilitate the the growth and to give you. Uh, give the CEO and the executive team a, uh, a a much broader perspective and hopefully some you know good ideas. But one of the things that you and I have discussed before and I've read a fair amount about is you know the lack of diversity on boards often stifles growth. It, it the studies I've seen show that when there are more women on boards, growth is more likely to be more rapid. And you help put together boards of advisors and mm-hmm. boards of directors. So mm-hmm. give, give me the, uh, the inside scoop here, please. Okay. So uh, as, as you know, Mark, I'm the author of Built to Scale, How Top Companies Create Breakthrough Growth Through Exceptional Advisory Boards. Scale is my uh, proprietary model, and it stands for Select, Compensate, Associate, Leverage, Evaluate, Evolve, and Exit. And that is the model that business owners and CEOs can use to intentionally select the advisors that they need to get their business to the next level. And, um, you know, a lot of most companies that are out there that don't follow a process, typically they think, hey, I think I want an advisory board, but they really don't even know what that is. And they really don't know how to leverage it. And they think that if they meet someone who is successful, they'll think, oh, I should have that person on my board. But they haven't done the work up front to figure out what we call are the holes and goals of their organization. So what are the missing pieces of their organization? Where are their weakest links? As well as what are the goals that they want to achieve regarding growth? Uh, An advisory board is never something or should not be something that is used to triage. It should not be used um, to stop bleeding, uh, to turn a company around. It's a strategic initiative that can truly result in quantum growth if you have done the upfront work to make sure that the right people are in the right seats. So what are the dedicated swim lanes? And that's the work that we do upfront with our clients initially is to figure out who the company is, where they want to go, and what the dedicated swim lanes are for their advisory board. And then once we do that, we help, uh, we help find those candidates, and I'm partnered with 
a company called Lodestone Global, and you can find them at Lodestone Global, L-O-D-E-S-T-O-N-E Global. And they are also a leader in advisory board and board of directors construction and their compensation experts. And they have a database of over a thousand different advisors worldwide um, that the founder, uh, William Tenenbaum, or the, the managing partner, has, has constructed over many, many years. So when we work with our clients, we use that database uh, to find the candidates that may fit for each seat. And we present four to five candidates per seat. And we do the heavy vetting first, uh, and then we move on to, to arrange interviews. When we do put the boards together, diversity is definitely top of mind. Uh, as you mentioned, you know, when you have women on boards, and of course there's all sorts of diversity, but you mentioned women, when you have women on boards, there's a, it's a proven correlation at the financial performance of a company when women are on boards. One woman is known as a token woman, not effective, not effective to have a token <laughs> woman on a board. Two women is effective. Three women is more effective. So depending on the size of the board, making sure that you've got that diversity. If you can get two women on the board, that would be ideal. But it is 100% proven that the financial benefit of having diversity is significant. Okay, cool. And, and that's exactly the direction I wanted to go in. So um, I'm going to switch gears here because I want to talk about the last uh, 18 months. Uh, has mm-hmm. it been that long? Yeah. Um, so adapting during the pandemic, what, what are you, what, how are you working with your clients to um, keep them abreast of things that they should be doing, uh, avoiding pitfalls? I mean, I, I, overall, I think our industry, the GovCon industry, has responded quite well, both the, the federal agencies with the work from home initiatives and, and you know, uh, doing, you know, whatever VPNs they need for that. And the, uh, the contractor industry, you know, morphing rapidly from a, uh, uh, a live networking culture, if you will, to a virtual networking culture and having BD and sales operate in that environment as well. What, what have you seen that works and what should people avoid? Well, leaders, uh, you know, have had to adapt to this new normal of how they, um, how they lead their organizations through difficulty and uncertainty more than they ever have. And, and what I created actually when the pandemic first broke out um, was something called the GRACE model. It's the GRACE leadership model. It stands for grit, resilience, adaptability, connection, and empathy. And it's a whole model on how leaders can lead with these five elements. How can they really step into their grittiness, you know, their own inner strength to be able to lead others through difficulty with confidence? How can they be resilient when they are knocked down, when, you know, they, they um, hit a, a, bad er- a bad point in their own business, whether it's revenue or attrition or uh, whatever it would be, how can they get back up? How can they strengthen their resilience muscle? How can they adapt? How can they pivot on a dime? And that's something that we at Successful Culture really had to do because a lot of our training that we were providing was in person and our clients still had need for training 
the need for the training differed and it changed and we had to immediately go online. So we had to shift our own model, right? Being adaptable in the pandemic world really made the difference between, you know, survival and failure for a lot of companies. Um, if they weren't able to pivot their business model, then they weren't able to stay relevant. So that's part of the adaptability and the grace model. And then connection and empathy. How do leaders maintain connection with their employees and show empathy when they were all sitting at home in their bedrooms and their living rooms and they're only talking to them on Zoom and they're not able to provide in-office culture, which, you know, is such a huge part of a business. You know, that in-office environment is what in many cases allows companies to create emotional connections with their people so that they stay engaged. So leaders had to really learn how to stay emotionally connected to their employees while everybody was remote and dealing with a lot of fear and a lot of uncertainty and, and illness and just, you know, unfathomable types of stress that, that no one had ever dealt with. So leaders were under a lot of pressure during this pandemic to maintain business operations while maintaining a healthy culture. Not easy. Not easy at all. And, you know, um, I don't know about you, but I, I, I think you're the same way. Uh, you've probably been homebound uh, for the vast majority of this pandemic. What, what has your reliance been on platforms like Zoom? Very heavy. Uh, as you know, I do CEO coaching and most of my coaching was on Zoom prior to the pandemic, um, but it increased. And then obviously all of the training we were providing increased. Um, you know, I, I coach, I have a dozen CEO clients that I coach. Uh, and so, you know, being able to make sure those relationships stay healthy and relevant on Zoom was, was very important, but the training all went to Zoom as well. And, you know, we had to learn the platform. We had to learn how to use the different breakout, you know, breakout rooms and the whiteboards and the chats and all the other features that go into Zoom. And what we found is that what we required, we have someone who attends all of the training that we do. And her role is specifically to be like our producer or our coordinator to make sure that we're, you know, there are no technical issues and she runs the breakout rooms and she runs the polling and she runs the chat, you know, the chat and all of that. So our needs in terms of the support for training actually changed because everything went online. Okay, cool. That takes us to our last break. You're listening to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. I'll wrap up with Marissa right after this. Welcome back to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. I'm here again today with Marissa Levin. My, uh, we are, we aren't going to say how long we've known each other. Uh, <laughs> it's 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 been a while, um, so <laughs> we we won't go there. Um, so I, I want to talk about this, the whole relationship kind of thing. The entire government market, uh, feds and contractors, are primarily resident in one place, and that is on LinkedIn. So mm -hmm. the, the pandemic, if anything, drove more people to try to use the platforms better. So um, how are you using social networking, not simply to stay in touch with those that you've done business with or are doing business with, 
but how are you using it to attract uh, new clients, new prospects for your boards? So, um, you know, Mark, my brand, you know, I've, I've always been really transparent and, you know, who I am, like my brand on Facebook is the same as on LinkedIn. Um, my professional brand and my personal brand are really one and the same. And I think it's that authenticity that actually allows me to build trust with my constituency, whether it's people who read my writings or my clients or just people who I network with. Uh, And it's why I've built such a loyal following and why I have such an incredible network based on trust, because what you see is what you get. So for me on the platforms, whether it's LinkedIn and then or Facebook or Instagram, you're going to always see the same person, no matter where you go to find me. And I use LinkedIn to uh, share my lessons, you know, like when I do a coaching session with a CEO and, and an insight or epiphany has come up, I will quickly after that coaching session record the advice that I've given or the wisdom that I've attained from that session so that as many people as possible can benefit from that information. I use LinkedIn not so much as like a look at me, look at me, look at me tool, let me shove this marketing down your throat tool, but more as an avenue where I can uh, share what my 30 years of experience and wisdom is so that other people can be their best. That's how I use social media. Okay. So when, when somebody comments on your, on your posts, mm-hmm. how, how do you deal with that? I respond. Okay. And it's me responding. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, it, and it, it really has to be because that that's where the real Marissa comes into play. If you have, you know, a social media person who does that for you, it's, it's never going to lead or will rarely read lead to a, a real relationship. So my, when I'm, when I'm training people on content marketing through LinkedIn, uh, basically through any platform, whenever you get a response or whenever somebody responds to your post, get back in touch, you know, acknowledge them because that, that will solidify or start to solidify a relationship with them. So are, are, are you taking what I, what I also try to do is, uh, see if I can put something in there to extend that particular conversation. Yeah. Particularly if they are uh, more likely to be a decision maker for their company. Yeah. And share additional resources. Uh, Like you said, like extend that conversation. If someone brings something up and I have a, you know, an article that I can share or, you know, just anything to add value. What can you do when you have a touch point and add value, not asking for anything, but giving. You know, when we're in a we're, we're in that place of where we're giving, uh, that's where the magic happens. Yeah. So, um, what? Give, give me. You know, besides your lessons learned from the coaching session, are you posting other things? I like to find articles that are germane to the the audience that I've built. Sure. Yeah, I post articles. I post videos. Um, I post even some personal things sometimes. Again, so that people can understand who I am as a person. I mean, we buy from people that we know, like, and trust. And so I want to make sure that, you know, the, the image that I'm putting out there is authentic and that 
you know, people know who I am. I don't want to come across as someone that I'm not. That's really important to me, especially in the era of social media where there's so much smoke and mirrors and, you know, people, you know, can really put anything out there and nothing is verified or validated. You never know if what people are putting out there is the truth, right? For me, staying in that place of authenticity is really important. Yeah, I, I, I try not to post personal stuff because oftentimes it's not germane to the audience that I've served. But as, as you know, uh, last Christmas I was diagnosed with prostate cancer. Mm -hmm. So once I got through the first round of therapy for that, before I found out the results, I did a post on that on LinkedIn, um, my, my adventure with the big C and, uh, uh, the reason I did it though, I, I, I don't like to share personal information. My life, my private life is my private life. I have my wife, my children, my cat, my books, uh, and, and, you know, it's my private side, but I, I share that to drive home the point that people need to get tested. I'm in remission because they found my cancer early. So, you know, that, that was why I shared that. And it actually got, you know, a decent response in the second one where I uh, shared that I, I got the, you know, the, the CAT scan results that they don't see the cancer anymore. So I'm in remission. Doesn't mean it's gone. It means that they can't see it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, I, I put that up there with the same message. Please go out and get tested. So um, I don't know why I threw that in there, but I did. Well, it's about being personal, right? Yeah, yeah. But I I like to keep, you know, if I see something where there's lesson learns in marketing, business development, sales, content marketing, I love to share that information, cite the original source, actually throw in the link for the original source, and then add my two cents. So... What are your favorite uh, info feeds for what you do? Are are there a couple or is you just, you get stuff? I just get stuff. Yeah. I um I don't really have any favorite info feeds. I mean, I actually like LinkedIn's info feed, you know, that they have running to the right. Uh-huh. That relevant content and it's usually pretty um, objective. So yeah. leaning right or leaning left. So I do like, I do really like the LinkedIn feed. Okay. Well, the LinkedIn feed, the algorithm should be feeding you information on your primary interest areas. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, so pay attention to that. Um, Final thoughts on, on anything we've discussed today. Uh, Hopefully I gave, you know, people who are building government contracting businesses, some insights and some lessons learned about the importance of of going deep versus wide. Uh, even when you are, you know, a company that provides multiple products and services, I think that that is an important lesson and the importance of being intentional with all the relationships that you're building, including building an advisory board. You know, you know, for me, my advisory board was transformational. It brought in quantum growth uh, and opened up so many doors that otherwise we never would have been able to open. So I can't express enough how valuable a well thought out and well crafted advisory board is. Um, And then finally, you know, for me, the importance of authenticity, especially in today's market, you know, being real, really showing who you are, knowing that leadership is really hard and reaching out for help from others to get you through it, I think is really important. 
Yeah, it, it's kind of funny you would end with that because ultimately, uh, you know, I was asked to come on to Federal News Radio 16 years ago. Um, and it was primarily because I am very much like you. I, I say what I think regardless of the venue. I bring on people on the show who share valuable insights into the market, uh, which is why you're back. Um, so it, 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 it is worthwhile. I mean, you know, people may not like me. Uh, I hope they do, but I, you know, I don't do things to be mean, but I, I say what I think, and I've been studying this market a long time. So I do, I do have a couple of clues. Yeah, you are the expert. It is always a pleasure to talk to you, Marissa. (laughs) So wonderful. This is not my day job. I do advise companies on all aspects of marketing to the government, but I like to focus on some of the things that Marissa and I've talked about today, that ABM factor, focusing on a single agency, content marketing, social selling. Uh, If these things resonate with you, if you really need to dig down into a particular agency to grow your business, give me a call. Uh, Drop me a line at markamtower at gmail.com. And thank you very much for listening to Amtower Off Center. You've been listening to Amtower Off Center on Federal News Network. Tune in Mondays at noon or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One. e-commerce merchants. Does consistent monthly growth while hitting ROI goals sound good? Here at AdRoll, our customers constantly let us know it feels good. AdRoll helps you attract new customers and bring shoppers back to finish the sale. Integrate your e-commerce store with AdRoll and manage display, social media, and native advertising all in one place. Sounds good, right? See the difference. Visit AdRoll.com to get started today. Your story, it lives in River City, where you can enjoy a metropolitan vibe and a small town feel, where we set the standard for service and looking out for one another, where there's so much more than steak in our thriving food scene. Your story is the story of Omaha, told by those who live it and love it. Whether that's helping you keep up with the Cornhuskers or creating the content you crave. And here in the Omaha World Herald is where it comes to life. Omaha World Herald, where your story lives.